Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Quartari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man whose car also has an awuga horn. <laughs> all cars should have a wooga horn. I think horn. it's the, it should be they should outlaw all other forms of horns. I think that my bike needs an awuga horn. I think horn. so too, yes. I, I think that's something you should invest in. I think elephants need an awuga horn. I think they have built in awuga all... horns, honestly speaking. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's made the awuga horn is just designed to uh to emulate the elephant. Right. The plangent cries right. of the elephant. Yeah, like um Yeah. Yeah, no, it's I I I'm fascinated. Those are the exact same noise. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, uh the 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 awuga horn on British on British cars from like the 19 like 20s is the exact same noise an elephant makes when it's dying to be uh harvested for <laughs> keyboard ivory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It's sad. Probably. Maybe it's maybe maybe they just, you, you know if you look at the sort of history of science with regards to the British Empire, the chances that that horn was made by harvesting something from some animal that like they, the reason why you never hear an Onawuga horn anymore is because they wiped out the entirety of that species just to make that fucking horn. There's like a ninety percent chance that's what happened. Made from the bladder of a Tasmanian tiger. Uh, through the vocal cords of a dodo. And that's why <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why we yeah. Can't do it anymore. And some some dude's like, "Look what I've invented! I'm a genius!" And then like, and then it's like, and then ten years later, you couldn't find either of those animals. Oops. Yeah. We put. Oh, we're we, the we, we did another British. Before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to a bonus episode. Yes. Also harvested from Tasmanian tiger bladders. Yes. All our bonus episodes, 100% Tasmanian tiger. Uh, that's, why, that's why we have the Awuga soundboard. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's the only really sound on there. You can head over to patreon.com slash lostincriterion and... Uh, yeah, for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our whole back catalog bonus episodes. You get to vote on what we're going to watch next. A little above that for folks who uh, can afford it and want to help keep us going, um, help us pay those server bills a little bit more. Uh, we're so grateful to them that we thank them on air. And thank you so much to our $5 supporters, Stephen Goldmeyer, Eric Cordonado, Chris Otto, and Andrew Jarrett. Yes, thank you. Above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard. I'll write a little personalized thank you note every month and mail that off to our $10 and above supporters. And we also like to thank them on air. Thank you so much to Nina Bajnak, Jason Westaver, Patrick Yako, Adam Speakerman, and Tracy McGrath, our current $10 yes, and you. above supporters. If you want to see those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there. You can see our past postcards. You can buy them if you like as postcards, as greeting cards, as uh, buttons, as uh, stickers, uh, and some as some other things as well. Um, very grateful to everyone who has purchased anything off our Redbubble. Very grateful to everybody who supports us on Patreon. And also very grateful to you for listening. Yes, thank you. 
Pat, this week is one of those things where uh, we get to once again be judgmental of the Criterion Collection. We're good at it. taking so freaking long to, to show us a thing it should have shown us probably like 10 years ago tops. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, it shouldn't. It certainly should have been in like the top 200, right? Like, like if yeah, you think if yeah. you're trying to like if I'm trying to like lay out in my head like okay, because like there's this time like you we've been able to identify with the Criterion Collection that there's like a time period in which they were showing us the things that they thought of as like the essentials, and then they started expanding yeah. outward from there, right? Like, my guys, right? This was an essential. You fucked it up. Sorry, yes. you yes. done fucked up. Yeah. Well, because like for yeah. a while there, like we so, literally we went probably how many like years watching exclusively things made in France, uh, yeah. Japan, yeah. and like a little bit of UK and, and and America basically. Like I, I occasionally elsewhere in Europe. Yeah, but it, we um, we basically never left Europe until unless it was a wet, unless yeah. it was a European director going somewhere else, we yes. didn't leave Europe. Yeah. Right. So, uh, finally. We have uh, something from Bengali director Satijit Rai. Uh, Rai in the original Bengali pronunciation more commonly comes to us through Hindi sources as Ray. Uh, Satijit Ray is what most people say, uh, but turns out it's actually Rai, and uh, I've corrected myself on that this week, so I'm going to stick with it. Okay, so we're going this with Rai. This is like when gotcha. I say Scorsese. This is like when I say Scorsese instead of Scorsese. I don't care what what everyone I else will says, fight including. You. Um, I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, Rai is his name, and that's what we'll stick with. Uh, our first Satijit Rai film is The Music Room, Jalsagar in the original Bengali, from 1958. It is a very early film of his. Uh, he His first film... Um, is also the first film in the Apu trilogy, and eventually we will watch the Apu trilogy. Uh, we have it. Okay, um, I was wondering about new, that because new, we we yeah we've you know gotten into it, but we you know are we going to see anything yeah. else ever? I believe there's a updated release of it actually coming out in January, uh, but they start at spine 783. Uh, Pather Panchali oh, okay. is his first film. Um, so yeah, it's still four years away, but we will watch it. I mean, uh, we we are assuming uh, we will watch it. Who knows what could happen? Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> Lots of things could happen. Uh, Pather Pinchali, uh, Rai had made already. Uh, Aparajito, Rai had made already. Um, and both of those films very much influenced by Italian neorealism, um, and making. And essentially, an Italian neorealist film in India at the time meant they were commercial failures. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. They were so at odds with what was popular cinema at the time. And this is true of those movies in Italy, That's, too. Yeah, right? that, it's worth <laughs> noting that, like, yeah. those movies just did not adhere to the sensibilities of the actual <laughs> movie-going audiences, you know? Right, absolutely not. No one had ever seen anything like that before. So um, those movies pretty much failed. And uh, so Rai decided to make The Music Room, one, as a way to incorporate music and dancing uh, into his film in a way that didn't feel weird to him. 
uh, as no doubt, I mean, anyone who's ever seen a Bollywood film uh, knows that sometimes the music and dancing is not naturalistic. Well, when bearing in mind <laughs> um, that, like, a, I don't know what, like, films were like at that time, per se, but bearing yeah. in mind that, like, European and American films that involve singing and dancing were in no way naturalistic. Singing in the rain right. is not also a sensical true. object also, of like, right. and like you know, true. and I also that's my true. always my go to. But they're all like that. We're like, well, and now is where we break into song and dance. It's like, fucking yes. okay, sure. You know, yeah, very much true. We have seen one thing that Rye worked on. Okay. Prior to this, oh, oh, right. Is this the one uh, the um the the Renoir thing or whatever? Or the, fr- the yeah, the Jean Renoir film, The River. Right, Rye worked as a <laughs> like a production assistant or something like that, right? Or I think camera, a production assistant of some sort. Camera? I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> I don't think. I just if I, I remember so correctly. I think he was even. I think he even might have just been a location scout. He might have been. It was so right. so long ago. But, but it was a long time ago that we watched that. Um, which, as you said, that was our first, not even our first experience with India necessarily, um, but uh, but often uh, our experiences with uh, East Asia in film outside of Japan have been Europeans making a film. Right, in East yeah. Asia. I mean, it, it, <laughs> Japan really truly holds, uh, like as far as the Criterion Collection, a special place. It's like, well, this is the yeah. only place that's right, which... Like there, you could talk a lot about like yeah. what that, what that, where that comes right. from, and why it's like that, but it very much is in line with the ideas of you know Jas- Japanese cinema at the time it's being made. Of like we're yeah. the only ones who actually right. do real Western stuff. Everybody else is just not good at it. I will, I I will qualify that by saying post-war, uh, mid mid twentieth century film. Yes, uh, because. Let's remember that very, very early on in the Criterion Collection, within the first 25 or so, we did have uh, uh, two John Woo films. This is uh, true. This so, is true. I mean, which, but like, you know, and that that's true. But yeah, like, but. it always, and, and to this day, a lot of it always feels like an outlier. It's like, well, we're going to show you the one yeah. thing because, like, right. it, it's it, by doing it the way they do it, it comes off as though those are, um, abnormal like aberrations in the system rather yeah. than like a little bit and like that's a really it, it, that feels very gross uh when you actually think about yeah. it too long where you're like oh like you don't consider all of this worth putting in and obviously there's limits to how much you can put in but sure are a lot of fucking french films in this thing for like yeah relative to yeah. nearly everything else and certainly nothing nothing within the french film selection is meant to say this is how all French films are. Right, right, right. Uh, or or alternatively, this is the only good one. The rest are shit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's occasionally how it feels with uh with Criterion's yeah, exclusions. Yeah, it's like into, we've got uh, the one good one markets. from this place. Watch it and yeah. now you know everything you need to know about right. no. Hong Kong or whatever. We are we are now firmly in the area era since we've been going through the criterion in their spine number release. We are now firmly in the era era of the criterion collection where they are changing course to correct mistakes like that. Um, yeah. And, and, and perhaps and this is, that's good. I mean, it's a good thing to do that. Yeah. It's just sort of like it took them. You're like, boy, it took you guys 500 and yeah. X number of, right. uh, 
fucking releases to figure out that like maybe right the like a few famous directors from other places are worth showing slash getting the rights to yeah yeah and and honestly starting to have their first rye release be the music room instead of the apu trilogy is an interesting choice right uh because the apu trilogy is certainly his his more famous work right well you know what's interesting about it though and not like not to like sort of steal the thunder of like the introduction here but like what's interesting about it is wh- what i find fascinating is like this movie feels unique not just like you know we could talk about whether or not where it's from and things like that but this film u- feels unique f- from the perspective of movies in general y- you know what i mean like this movie feels yeah. feels very singular in its existence the the thing that would like i would relate it most close i don't even know like the only thing i could think of the entire time we were watching was like oh my god somebody made like gothic romanticism into a movie <laughs> like i feel like i'm watching like um like it's like oh somebody got like poe or like mary shelley right in like yeah. a really like but in india you know what i mean like it's it's Right. There, there's yeah. something so it just feels it is, that way to me. Um, it is sort of a Indian Gothic romanticism. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm fucking in love with it yeah. because it's like, I've ne- I've, I don't think I've. You see, movies go for that, but they almost always get lost in the need to like sort of spec spectacleize. Spec. I don't want to say spectacle as in the glasses, yeah. but I don't think specular. I don't know how you would say that, but turn. There's a there's a habit with like making gothic romanticism or something akin to that into other art forms is a sort of tendency to like make it to 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 overdo it right some of it comes down to the subtleness of it is important right and whenever mm-hmm. you know obviously something like Frankenstein or something when it's rendered into to film almost exclusively was always rendered as like horror right as as, as monsters right? right but even like Poe or something like that is gonna get sensationalized to a certain extent because the slow drumbeat of it all doesn't feel people don't want to don't people they don't think people want to watch that right they don't it does not feel spectacular uh yeah but this is like this i mean my my touchstone for it was it felt very like the more melancholy of the the Edgar Allan Poe stuff but like also something like Frankenstein or something like that where you're like it's all like it's all sort of it's it's bordering on a horror movie in in the in a more sort of uh yeah existential way yeah uh we've got the the haunted aristocrat whose castle is decaying around right um classic who's uh whose own emotional trauma uh has uh that is sort of a result of his singular obsession with art um has uh has robbed him of of life right right yeah i mean um, yeah he was like he very much was foisted on his own guitar but like sort of right like it's that it, yeah, it, it yeah, puts yeah. us in a position where like he didn't actively kill his family but like right he right. views it as his fault right and his love of music right. is the reason i mean it's 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 a it's one of the. It, it's a very classic example of that of that yeah. that genre well, where you where you're like, well, you as the, we as the audience go, we understand why he's blaming himself. He probably shouldn't yeah. be, but he we understand why. 
Well, it's not. It's also not just his love of music. It's his love of importance. Right. Right. Yeah. So because, he's tied his music directly to the, yeah. the the fact that he needs to be seen as grand. He needs to be the one who's looked up to. His entire competition yeah. with the other guy is entirely derived from a need that need to be the most important person in this town. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, which yeah. I mean, he is like the leader. Like he is the 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 monarch theoretically of this town. So like it makes sense that he is that way. Yeah. A couple things that set this apart from, from your average Gothic romanticism is uh, maybe broadening that category too much. Um, visually, this has the, the rotting castle has uh, parallels in something like Rebecca or, uh, film versions of the great expect uh, great expectations. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, and those those always are also romances. Period. Right. And this is not. Well, yeah. I mean, I there's this, no this is more no gothic lover. than it is romanticism. <laughs> yeah, it, it's right. romanticism right. in the fact that like the what exists of the past is very romanticized. Uh, yes. It's more the, the more that kind of view of it than it is like these are yeah. these are certainly not this is certainly not a rom like romantic story right. or anything like that, and um, and also generally in those stories we don't have the nouveau riche neighbor who is the right 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 the, well so, the new version of what you are well, the thing about or it what is, you is, thought you were I I do have an argument to not not like to say we're wrong but like <laughs> if you think about something like certainly like Poe or something like that right. It's, it could kind of partially be understood that the new neighbor is is the audience, is the person reading the poem, right? You're kind of looking mm -hmm. in on this person with your own sort of newish, modernish uh, perspective, right? Okay. Um, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not going to make that argument as like a like. No, I'm right. <laughs> I'm just saying that like yeah. to a certain extent, when you look at the way that the, those characters are viewed, we're always they're always viewing them from the outside, and I think we fit into that category too. The difference is that like. There's there's just a little bit of a hint of like, oh, we we want to have a little bit more conflict within this story beyond just man against time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, which is like sort of a more, more sort of a more classical sort of version of that. But I don't right, know, like right, right. I, you just sort of, I mean, if it were a little bit creepier, it would just be gothic horror. But it's not quite there. Right. It's it's somewhere floating in between those things. Yeah, it's got. It definitely has those elements. I wonder if we weren't watching in October, if either of us would think about those elements. But I don't. I, here's uh, what I will say: I, think I don't them. think about yeah. Mary Shelley or Edgar Allan Poe at Halloween time. <laughs> also, Halloween's not much of a big deal in my life. I barely think about it, except for like that's, wishing that Hulu would show me fewer horror movie commercials. <laughs> that's that's probably fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> Three times in the last two weeks, I've walked into work and Saw has been on the television. And like, I cannot. We we are a hot. Dog we need to stop doing this, right? Saw yeah, on the yeah. TV. Well, like, we can't keep I, doing. I this. I I really I can't ever. I've never been able to get over the fact that like, I I it's bothered me. It bothered me when I was younger, but it's gotten a lot worse in terms of like what is actually produced. Like the yeah. graphicness of commercials for horror movies has really hit a, a oh, point where it's like fuck. this feels inappropriate like children i have are around i've complained about this 
I've complained about this in the podcast before, I think. And so have I. Yes, we both have. Now. <laughs> but uh, when I've been at my family, at my parents for Thanksgiving, and we put AMC on because uh, Home Alone is being shown. Right. And then every single commercial break has a graphic 30-second ad for The Walking Dead. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's absolutely. like, what are you even thinking? What is going yeah, on? Yeah, well, here? and like when I'm watching, uh, like we wa- I, we don't watch a lot of Hulu anymore, but when I do, like I'm kind of overwhelmed by like it's like these are really like these are really intense, and I understand that like the TV yeah. show I'm watching, the kids are usually asleep, uh, but not always, right? Like because we watch things that kind of fit into some sort of gray, some gray areas, right? And it's like. I, I it, it is what we're like. I know which ones they are. And so the moment I see like a thing, I'm like, Dylan, you need to close your eyes, like yeah. because like yeah. this thing is, it's like you are doing. Especially who's really guilty of it because they own their channel and they're talking about the originals for their sh- their original horror movies that they do every year. Right. And so they right. like they they want to like bombard their audience with them, right? It's like you know, like not everybody likes horror, right? Like. I'm not watching a horror show right now, and it's like this is too too much. Yeah. You this is you need to yeah, like I agree. back off. I agree. Yeah. So um, so we've got those gothic elements of this, and that uh, it is uh, a rich aristocrat who has burned through all of his money and burned through all of his loved ones, and the only people who still hang out with him are. The uh, the servants who feel devotion to him, but also at least one of them spends most of his day asleep, right? Right. I mean, they, when, they, assuming when, they don't when want someone a says the, job, yeah. yeah. Right. When someone tells him that the boss wants to see him, he says, who? Right. Yes. Like, yeah. It's, it's like a very good thing. It's like, what? Yeah. Well, and like you get the impression, right, that like the, the sort of takeaway we get is that like, oh, he's become so stuck and like locked in his house that like that servant never gets called anymore right because he's the right, guy who like right, right. makes delivery and shit he's like, the doorman. yeah exactly yeah. he's like oh exactly. you don't i don't have a job anymore i just hang out yeah yeah um and then we have the uh the nouveau riche owner uh, uh, uh neighbor who is uh who made all of his money as uh I mean, as a money, as a money lender. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, he's classic film bag. Like, I mean, we, we are focused on our main character here and like, but we, they, they go out of their way to make sure like, look, you need to understand 100% above all other things. This guy's a piece of shit. Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, uh, you know, he, he wants to pursue this art. Uh, He wants, he wants the music as his thing. But only because our main character, right? Has yeah, he's in like distinct competition thing, right? with him, right? Like he, does, like yeah. the neighbor is also engaged in this pro in this in this project, right? Like yeah. the neighbor is constantly choosing to do things based on like what our main character yeah. has been and doing, and it is presented as that classic nouveau riche. You know, they are he is he is doing this thing not for any cultural understanding of why he wants to do this thing, but just because. Well, the old money people are doing it. Right. So yes, we should yeah, do it too. Yeah. Right. Um Yeah, which is I don't think this film is honestly it's certainly not out to praise either of those guys. No. <laughs> um, it's not super out to to uh condemn either of them either. But uh 
there's actually there's a really interesting thing uh, from uh, from the essay uh, written by Philip Kemp. Um, Kemp is talking particularly about the music and how the score to this movie uh, is composed by uh, Vilayat Khan, um, who is a Bengali maestro uh, composer. And Khan's family has a long history of support from the Zamindari class, um, this this aristocracy class that our main character here belongs to. Um, and Camp uh, quotes Ray as saying uh, about the music uh, that if he had been left to write it himself it would have had a more ironic edge to it. Okay. Uh, Ray says, I liked Villiette's theme as a piece of music, and I felt the story would tell what I wanted to tell, and the music would not interfere with my general attitude toward feudalism. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, obviously, you know, Ray's previous two movies are Indian neorealism, right? right they right. are stories about desperately impoverished people Ray's familial history is uh merchant class right it seems mostly seems seems um, roughly middle class like yeah. upper middle class maybe but certainly um it does also you also get the impression because like the sort of story he tells is, is fairly life story he tells about himself is fairly complicated to like track but you get the yeah. impression there were probably some ups and downs right like things were not always yeah. that 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 class state was probably not continuous and level right. yeah his his father died when he was very young um his mother had to work to raise him um but also his aunt is a famous singer and his uncle is a famous artist right. yes, and yeah. His, uh yeah so um yeah they were they were a well-respected artistic family um and his grandfather, his grandfather owned a publishing house, but also died six years before. Right, and like it seems like the the, the 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 publishing house is one. Like they, he mentions the fact that like that essentially folded with like he was yeah. very very young when that like wrapped up essentially. Yeah. So, so the uh, the he is not of the same class of people as. Uh, as Roy in the film. Right. As our main character in the film. Um, the Zamindar were originally a landowner class established by the, the Mughals. I can never remember how to pronounce that either, actually. In, like, the 15th century, I right. think? The 16th century, maybe? <laughs> um, so, uh, pretty, pretty long ago. Um, and then... The British came in and essentially just allowed them to still exist as as the go-betweens, as the, the middle management of the empire. Right. Uh, and then with the East Indian Company coming in in, uh, in Bengal, particularly, there's an establishment of a mercantile class that is this nouveau riche class to a certain extent that we see in the film. Right. Um, but uh, but the film's 1920, so even that's like pretty long after that because British 
British control of India starts in the mid 19th century, right? Right. Early 19th century, even. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that rise, uh, grandfather's, uh, print house is part of that, uh, explosion of, of merchant class, uh, in, in being local contracts with the East India company. So, no, he's he's from a family that, in a manner, did benefit from right British rule, but also benefit is big air quotes right. there. Our main character is a zamindar who is lo- absolutely losing power, um, and politically, they have lost power. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean the the the, the know, heyday of their of their power is essentially has waned yeah. like even by the time by the time we see him he is essentially a a sort of zombie position right like he's not the no money's yeah. not coming in but it is still leaving they're selling off the jewels to like pay for these artistic festivals or yeah. these artistic yeah. activities and stuff so yeah um the Zamandari class, the whole system, period, was finally completely abolished in the 1951 Constitution. I, I don't know enough about class culture in uh, class structure within modern-day India, other than what few looks we have gotten at it from Indian directors. Right. Uh, seems like it's not great. This family is definitely on the outs. Um, right. Yes. So, and you know, we get we get some really on the nose uh, symbolism about them being on the outs over the course of the film too, in my, in a very gothic romanticism way too. Like the final the final sequence of all the candles slowly burning uh, yeah, out around yeah. the house. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> really that really seems like something Edgar Allan Poe would write. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like really not being subtle with the with the um with the with the. Yeah. metaphors at all like yeah and that's kind of what you want right like i mean honestly speaking right. when you're when you sign up for like a story like this you kind of want to be slapped in the face with it it's not like right right, we, right there's no need to be subtle here let's just let's just let it let's let yeah. it let's go for it yeah. yeah the you know we've had stories about aristocrats in the past something like uh the leopard where it's someone trying to make that transition right right uh, here, this guy is not trying to transition to the new world uh, and the new the new status quo of of India. Um, and to be honest, you know he's he's living in an era where there's not really a new status quo. To you know, there's people getting rich, and he's not one of them. But uh, the power structures haven't changed in a hundred years by the time we're right. we're to to the the story that we're seeing here. So, you know, he's just existing. And that makes it more like a British romantic <laughs> romanticism, too. Like right. Gothic romanticism, too. And that, you know, it's the aristocracy has died and there is a new class of rich people. But uh, that puts them that puts them. At odds for a middle manage a middle management power that, right. uh, yeah, 
And that's sort of what we see, but no one's no one's overtly exercising that power. Right. Right. Uh, they both have large ornate houses. They are both throwing parties for the neighbors. Um, they both have no uh, no interaction with the poorest of the poor that we see. Well, uh, yeah, they both are. What they are, they're both them, doing. Right? They're both doing the thing that, like, they're they both at one point we see, like, we, we they talk very vaguely about that two times. Once mm-hmm. there's, uh, you know, we 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 hear like, okay, well, you know, when the floods came, I opened my house, and thousands came, like, but that was there's very much a sort of like notion of that as done as a sort of like social obligation, like, well, this is what. This is what people in our position do, right? Um, and then um, the uh, the sort of nouveau riche neighbor, uh, he uh, he like has a for like I think it's like his son's I f- I forget some maybe it's the opening of the house or something, but he throws a um, a sort of like ah we will also care for the poor thing as part of it it's mentioned where it's like yes yes yes, yes. it's all social obligation right it's all like well this is what's done right for people in our our position it is also another thing of wealthy landowner what what's to be expected he's positioning himself as the new landlord the new right yes the new earl of the area right um and that's that's a thing that uh, those that class of people, particularly in the British structure, do once a year or so. Right. Open up the house to have a party for everyone who lives on the property that is technically yours, and oh. they pay taxes to you. Right. Uh, so, you know, it might be an aspect of emulating that. Um, it's also his son's coming out party, basically. They... Uh, they call right. it his initiation. Right. Is how we get it translated in our subtitles, but it's essentially a coming of age yes, presentation yeah. to the world. Um Yeah. Which is, you know, then we get a flashback to Roy planning his own son's coming of age. Right. Uh and forty minutes of flashback that ends when that child's death. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, I mean you kinda know it's going somewhere, but like yeah. It doesn't give you a lot of hint. Like, you know what state he's in now, but you don't really under... Like, you're kind of assuming it's not going to be as bad as it is. Yeah, yeah. And it is pretty bad. Yeah, it's it's real bad. <laughs> it, it's, well, and it's fascinating. The whole thing is, yeah, very fascinating because, you know, like, his wife... You know, Roy's wife had ar- had already taken the son away, essentially, because he was a sort of, like, a sort of essentially a unreliable, like... Yeah, husband well, he'd been, yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd, blown he'd all already started pawning off her jewelry, all of her jewelry, yeah. and, and yeah. like, and so you get this really like, so he calls her back. It, it's 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 really it is very, very tragic. Like it comes off, it it, it works very well as a sort of tragic story. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also found it interesting um, as maybe a political a betrayal of the politics of the movie makers uh, to have Roy, when he starts talking about what makes him different from this nouveau riche guy is the blood in his veins, the blood right, of his right. ancestors, the aristocracy. 
And when he starts talking about that, he's talking about it in English. Right. And it's it's one of the first times we hear him speak English in the film. Perhaps the, I mean, the first time we hear him speak English. Yeah, it might be, film. yeah. Uh, and talking about that hereditary power in the language of the colonizer uh, is an interesting choice. <laughs> right, yeah. It, it, it really get, it it's... Like it's sort of I think I wonder like exactly what Ray's going Ray's going for with this uh, is my mm-hmm. I'm wondering if like the, part of the goal is like we need to reiterate that he is also very is in theory very sophisticated like as a I, I, it's hard to know if it's if it's mostly a commentary on um sort of the colon the sort of the element of colonization or if it's more of a commentary on like his status as somebody who like did get those like fancy educations and stuff like that Mm -hmm. yeah um i mean not for nothing he is also speaking english to one of his servants who presumably understands right what he's what is being said well we also see that one of the servants i think it's him like reads I, i think when they get the missive the letter in the flashback i think he also it's from the bank and they read it in english yes yeah, and I think it might be him reading it too. Well, it's yeah, it's the yeah, servant. So. It's probably it might be the same servant. It's like, oh, like there's a certain sort of like it's similar. So I wonder also if it's just supposed to sort of denote a sort of sophistication, and then also like what percentage of your audience can or can't understand this thing that is happening. You know what I mean? Like, well, also, also I think in that particular moment to have that message from the bank that is saying from the official financial powers that are. Above this, right? That that exist like, Bengali aristocrat. Well, and in many way are in many ways like y- you work in service of this system, right? Like the bank is yeah. the system that you are right to serve, right? And it is also speaking in English, right? Right. Uh, and there are many reasons that a uh, an Indian based bank would communicate in English as well that are about uh, aligning itself with the colonial powers. So it's not necessarily a British bank that is denying him, but well, but I think also probably but when you one thinks about the s- status of India during the, during colonization and stuff, there's no such thing as the not British bank in the sense that like, even if it's nominally right. in, uh, Indian, it's wholly controlled by the colonial powers, right? right. Nothing is right. A, like not essentially nothing is allowed to happen in India that that is not at least tacitly approved of by the, 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 the colonizers, right? Like, that's just the way colonization works, right? Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, the East India Company is just in charge. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, depending, obviously, you know, within air quotes, because it is, it is directly just, they stop pretending that the East India Company isn't just directly the government. Uh, <laughs> at uh sometime in the late 19th century right right but um but yeah so you know the use the use of english in this film is i think always representative of power right Uh, yes i think so yes yeah and it's where you know it's where the bank has power over roy but it's also where roy declares an unending power that he insists he still has, even as he doesn't. Right. 
Right. Because he, he says that about the blood in his veins, and then we see the portraits of seven or eight generations right. of his family, all aristocrats, all which would have to date back to before British rule, right? Just timing-wise. Yeah, I mean, it's very uh, clear that British rule just re... re um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of re-establish, like re or or continues the established power structures that yeah. already have already are already present, right? right? Like, yeah, it, they would have to. It does. There's no way you didn't get that many family generations in 150 right. years right. or whatever. It's just not possible, right? Yeah, and then he gets to his portrait, the one we'd seen seen him sitting for during his halcyon days, right? Uh, before his family died, um. And there's a spider on it, right? And like a big, a big scary spider, right? 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 Mentions like one. Some you know, he makes a comment about that in the in the documentary where he's like, well, you know, when there's no dialogue, and then also, you really need to get this point across, and you don't want to have like a narrator or like a voiceover. It's like, well, sometimes you have to resort to really base, uh, <laughs> yes, base metaphors. Yes. I thought it was very scary funny. Spider. It's like, yep, big old scary yeah. spider. Uh, will tell the audience yep. what it needs to know about the situation. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and this is still three or four years before the spider god of uh, of Bergman that we that right. we deal with as the as the big scary metaphor for the unknowable uh, later on. I'm actually sort of surprised that we don't get more English out of the mouth of uh, Ganguly, the neighbor. We get a little um, bit, right? I mean, we do hear a little yeah. bit. I can't I can't remember exactly what he... He does say a few things uh, in English. Uh, but yeah, no, I it, yeah. I, it is... It, I agree it is a little surprising because you would think that, like, if it's about, like, sort of establishing status and, like, if English is the sort of sophisticated language of the sophisticated modern Indian man, that, like, he would just be using it you would think you'd be using it all the time to just sort of show how important he is. Uh, and that yeah. doesn't happen nearly as much as one would expect. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we do get some of it, right? Like, it's not, it's not nothing. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if, if this movie were just that power struggle, uh, as, uh, the aristocracy dissolves, um, it might've, been interesting enough but also this is a movie very much about music and dance right and showcasing of uh classical uh classical art in that way um you know uh and even even as roy is a benefactor of or a beneficiary of uh british rule and his house has british influence uh in design Right. Um, he is someone very much a patrician of classical Indian art. Um, and like like I said earlier uh, or alluded to with the. Uh, with the uh, really got Khan's history, the guy who did the music for this movie, the score for this movie. Um, this class of aristocrat was traditionally very much patrons of classical music. Right. Uh, and very, very much Indian classical music only survives because of patronage from, right. Right. From this class of people. Um, yeah. One of the bonus features is, um, called for the love of the music 
or for the love of music. Uh, and it's an interview from 2011 with Andrew Robinson, who's the author of Sajijit Rai's The Inner Eye. Um, and he, he talks about the history of, uh, of classical music being saved by these feudal lords um, as patronage and even mentions that uh, Ravi Shankar's family history is full of, full of musicians right. uh, who were patronized by such people. So, um, yeah. Uh, you know, like I had said, Rai wanted, wanted a movie that justified its use of music uh, and a good, you know, at least a third of the movie is dedicated to performance, right? Right. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And and even even the quieter, contemplative, just look at Roy B. Sad scenes, there's someone playing live music right next to him, right? Right. Um, another thing uh, that bonus feature points out that I really like is that... Uh, uh, Robinson says uh, that Chabi Biswas, who plays Roy, was like completely tone deaf. Okay, nothing about music. Uh, so that's fine. Rye had to do a Rye had to do a lot of directing him about how to look like you're properly listening to music as an aristocrat. Oh, nice. Um, so particularly. Uh, they draw attention to a scene where uh, Roy's sitting in his house and hears music from the neighbor's house uh-huh. uh, and is mad that the neighbor has the music playing, but also likes the music. <laughs> and, and while he's sitting there contemplating things, uh, every so often he just raises his finger. Uh-huh. That's an interesting little thing that within this type of music uh-huh. uh there is a 16 bit rhythmic cycle and as an indication that you are sophisticated enough to understand that there is a 16 bit rhythmic cycle in this music you raise your finger whenever the cycle starts again okay interesting uh, as a connoisseur listener uh so rye rye is showing us that uh Biswas, uh, that that roy knows to do this even though biswas did not know to do this uh and essentially just told biswas yeah just sit there raise your finger every so often i will make sure it lines up with the music when i edit the scene together nice. and you'll be fine nice <laughs> we'll fix it in post um but yeah, that's very so, funny yeah uh but every scene of performance of of people enjoying music is shot so Delicately and interestingly, like the big, the big dance in the third act, um, is, you know, this, this final, his final act, uh, the last of his money, um, the way, I mean, the whole, the whole, everything in the music room is sort of shot this way, but where we see the performance, but we also have that huge mirror behind the performers. So we see the audience. Right. Uh, at the same time that we're seeing the performance. Um, and of course, we still get insert shots of individual scene, you know, reactions, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or cuts to the musicians. But, but the bulk of it is this broad, big, 
feels like a huge space feels like a very expensive space right right um, and that's mostly this was filmed on location uh except for the music room itself which was a set built because the uh the palace they found to film in it's it's music room was not up to snuff okay. for rise uh, uh for rise intentions um but yeah uh, they're just shot also well, uh, and and it's shot by a uh, frequent collabor- collaborator with Ray, uh, uh, Sabrata Mitra, who shot the Apu trilogy, uh, shot this and shot some of the other some of the other Rai work we'll see over the course of uh, the rest of the Criterion Collection. Right. Uh, an interesting thing, um, an interesting thing reading uh, Rai has to say about Mitra's work. Uh, that I really liked. Um, he says, quote, you know, about seven or eight years after Pather Panchali was made, I read an article in American Cinematographer written by Sven Nyquist at the time of Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly, I think, claiming the invention of bounced light. But we'd been doing that since 1954. <laughs> um, uh, so, so Rai, Rai says Mitra is on the forefront, um, and and puts him right in the same category as Nyquist, um, and obviously Nyquist is a fan, one of one of the best cinematographers we we talk about right. in this podcast. Um, uh, someone we absolutely love his work as well. Um, but yeah, so he's you know the the lighting in this movie and and particularly within the within the music room uh, when we're not dealing with natural light. Um, obviously most of the outdoor scenes were on location and we're dealing with natural light and they're shot well too, but, uh, within the music room, the pans across the space and the mirror, I was just super impressed and in awe of every single one of those right. scenes. Yeah. They, they look so, so good. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and as a document of actual performers, uh, it's perhaps very interesting. Everyone's credited as a playing a character, but they're all doing things that they do. Um, right. You know, yeah. It's not, it's not an actor playing a dancer. It's just a dancer cast in a role. Right. Um, same goes for, for the singers, uh, whether they're credited as someone else or not. Uh, it's who they are. Um, and yeah, there's, Great performances. Uh, there was uh, in the Wikipedia reception section, which which so this one is pretty densely packed. Um, right in the middle, they uh, talk about Stanley Kaufman's reaction to this. I don't know who Kaufman was writing for when when he would have seen this originally. Um, it's it's pre- basically the entire paragraph is praise for this film. Uh, and then right in the middle of it, Stanley Kaufman says, uh, called the film a deeply felt, extremely tedious film. Okay. The Indian music is simply uncongenial and tiresome to our ears. That's, oh boy, and, man. We really turned on the racism tab, didn't we? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, it's bad. Uh, Really? Yeah, I, that really. Um, well, I, I did not. I did not see that coming. Boy, that was. 
Woof. Yeah, yeah, it was bad. Um, yeah, you know, Indian music is different to Western music. Uh, there was nothing extremely. Uh, maybe I just have a better ear than this guy. I don't know. I mean, this guy sounds um, like he's got maybe but, like a, a tin ear sort of situation going on. It's like, I mean, the music was was music. I mean, it was. I don't it was, know. It was good. It was interesting yeah. to listen to. I, I mean, I will say that probably we suffered a little bit in the sense that because this music maybe isn't quite as much the standard music we listen to on a regular basis, we probably maybe found it more engrossing than an audience of perhaps of people who hear this much more often, you know, you know, 1958, you've got, you got record players, you know, people are hearing music on a, you know, there's music tends to be a background sound in well, life for a lot of people, I, a lot of times. And so, yeah, but I, I don't think Kaufman's saying these aren't good examples of Bengali music. I think he's saying all Bengali no, music no, is bad I, to my no, ears. No, I agree. I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> my yeah. point was is that like you and I, not not this not this asshole. Yeah. Um, you and I right. probably I I don't know about you, but for me, when I get a chance to listen to a large sort of curated section of of music that I'm not used to, that I find it's pretty engaging yeah. and interesting, it's probably more interesting and engaging. Than it would be maybe for the audience that the movie was originally intended for. You know what I mean? I might be getting yeah. like the thing that Rye said in the beginning, in one of the quotes at the beginning about like the idea. Well, this didn't overshadow the point I was trying to make, so I just like ran, you know, about feudalism and stuff. That, yeah. Like I just ran with it. I wonder if, to a certain extent, it works a little bit different from you and me because it is fairly novel. So we're kind of maybe a bit more into it than the audience who can mostly just maybe tune it out. Right, the intended audience. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's like if you made a. I'm going to make a really bad uh, comparison, but like if you made a movie in like the early 2000s that was like some shitty new metal soundtrack, your brain, you, yeah. my brain would just like turn that off. It just didn't even fucking exist, right? And if somebody right, said like, right, "Did right. you do you remember like so and so from the soundtrack?" I'd be like, "No, I don't. Sorry, my yeah. brain turned it off." Now I'm not trying to say that these people are the new metal. Uh, Early two thousands new metal rock <laughs> of India. They, they, it sounds yeah. like they are good, like well regarded performers. You know what I mean? But like, yeah. My point, my point being is that that we are this other guy. Obviously, is just like oh, this music's shit and like is not meant for Western ears, which is an insane thing to say. Uh, yes, but like uh, it, I, 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 I did feel while I was watching, I was like oh, I might be a bit more into this music than I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I. I was definitely engrossed by it too, uh, and it helps that visually what's going on is very interesting right, at right. the time too, right? Yeah. Um, particularly with the dancing in the final act, but but also you know all of the performances uh, and the way the camera is moving through the room. Mm. Um, I don't know that we've ever experienced a quote from Kaufman and his criticism before, which is weird because he wrote for like seventy years. Um, well, if it's all for racist uh, shit, maybe it's better not to. <laughs> He he seems to have been a famous contrarian oh, in a lot of We all know what that means. Yeah. Racist uh, but gets a and, pass. Uh, according according to Wikipedia, he wrote I, I maybe we'll change your mind with this sentence. According to Wikipedia, he wrote negative reviews of Brazil, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Godfather, uh Pulp Fiction, Million Dollar Baby, Gone with the Wind and 2001. Um, I mean, he's right about some of them. He is right about some of them, <laughs> but 
Maybe. I like the, we don't know what you he know actually what said. we we you and I are on uh, the wrong racket, Adam, because being yeah. just hating every movie that anybody else likes that seems like a pretty good gig. Uh, that's that's cinema sins. That's oh yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Died, too, yeah, so. uh, yeah. Damn, we missed our chance. Yeah. Uh, another another thing I find interesting that's happening in this movie is uh, climate change. Um, I guess. Yeah, the rising, the rising uh, uh, water. Yeah, the the river is literally eating his land away, uh, as as it floods. Well, uh, it, but it's not. Yeah, it's hard to know if it's climate change it, or if it's just like he's. It, one gets the impression it's hard to tell. One gets the impression it might just be that like, well, this is a thing that was always going to happen, always happens, and when the land's properly managed by somebody who cares about it. That can be, yeah. But he doesn't care about he doesn't managing care to it. Do it. So it is like, oh, whoever was in charge would be dealing with this problem. He's just not dealing with this problem, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. the river rises and the river falls is a very standard. Most most agricultural communities go through that. It's like, well, yeah. Right. But did you direct where it rises and where it falls, or did you just leave it eat, let it eat the fucking garden? Right. Yeah. His wife particularly complains about seeing it, the garden being eaten by the river. Uh, and when we're finally outside with him, uh, in the final scene of the movie, um, everything's pretty barren. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, not a lot of, the, there's no land management going on. I'm also fascinated yeah. by the, like it all, it funnily enough, I think there's probably a little bit more in here. Maybe I think on purpose, uh, I'm pretty sure on purpose, I should say, um, the his rival whose name has escaped me i had it open and now i have closed it uh gungali i think is his name what was the name of his his uh, nuvarish um, neighbor uh, gungali yeah, gungali is his gungali name. is um has has got permission theoretically to build his house in like on the sort of sand barrens and it's like i'm fairly certain that gungali's house because his goal was to compete with roy um has also built his house on a place that eventually the river will eat. Yeah. It seems pretty likely that like, oh yeah. Seems like it. Yeah. You've just built your house in a place where like eventually the river is just going to devour your house. Like it's very, it's a very new orish, like, you know, new middle class, like, um, sort of, um, whatchamacallit, um, hubris sort of thing to do. Right. Like, well, this is the place with the best view. Never mind the fact that there's probably a reason nobody built the house there before. Uh, yeah, because you're going to be like constantly, consistently, um, sort of fighting back the river. Um, I'm also fascinated by the fact that like once Gungali has got the house there, the machine just becomes this sort of drumbeat. It's it's among yeah. the things that sort of contribute to the sort of gothic, go, more gothic element of it. Sort of the getting into sort of yeah the 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 Edgar Allan Poe thing, Telltale Heart sort of Certainly, thing. Certainly yeah. yes, but like yeah. you, you get the sort of like this idea of this sort of like. Now his life has a clock. Now, yeah. now suddenly there's a rhythm that measures his life that isn't like one he chose, and and it, and it's driving you insane. It's driving the audience insane, right? We're yeah. listening to it. Every scene has it in it, and it just never stops. Yeah. Whatever this fucking machine. Well, is. I, I think also the rhythm of a generator. Uh the rhythm of a two-stroke engine is not the 16-beat repeating rhythm right. of yeah, absolutely. the music yeah. Roy listens to, right? 
uh, it's at odds with right. It, it is. It's actively uh, ruining whatever. And, and mind you, by that time, he's mostly not yeah. listening to music anymore. Uh, not right. really. I mean, like right. even when he has performers in there, he's essentially ignoring them. They're just there for for nothing, yeah. right? Uh, but like, yeah, it's um, it is it is a drum beat in a in a really gross and rudimentary sense, right? Like, it's meant to feel crude and gross. Uh, it, right. it it's not a pleasant noise of any sort. It it goes on and on and on. And it never ends, and. You, you, yeah. the audience member, wants to go get a hammer and break his fucking generator. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, right. And, of course, the fact that Gengoli actively chooses to live that life is another, another a show piece that he of is, why. That he, is, he is, yeah, not, not sophisticated in any capacity, right? That he can just right. live right. with the set, that, that incessant drum beat. Like, right. a, a beat that even the audience doesn't fine like even the right, audience hates. Right, right yeah obviously the music's a very part important part is that but that aspect of the sound design oh, is also yeah. very good it's really good like once it starts yeah. and then like you kind of like slowly come to the realization it's never going to go away and there are right. places in the house that seem to be isolated from it that are far enough in like when he's in the music room you're far enough away that you can't really hear it uh but mm-hmm. pretty much any time he's on the outs, like anywhere around, like it's most of the time, right? Like there are, I do believe, I, now I might be wrong, I may have just drowned it, like sort of mentally blocked it out. There are places that he goes where he doesn't hear it all the time, but it's yeah, very that incessant. Might be true. Um, it's it's actually hard to remember. I I feel like it's true, but I might be wrong too. Like I may have like literally just blocked it out after a while because it was driving me insane. Also, the the ending of this film with his seemingly purposeful suicide uh certainly doesn't care if he lives or dies um i mean it seems like he's like mentally broken right he's like kind of lost it right yeah that's uh, what seems to be happening he's 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 doing this thing where uh in any western movie he'd be driving a sports car too fast yeah absolutely but instead he's absolutely. driving a horse too fast right at a boat and and, and yeah at a boat uh at a beach boat which one the symbolism of what what killed his wife right, right? absolutely um well killed his son and uh killed his killed his son and his wife i i was under the impression uh, like when they the, talked about it like i thought his wife survived but she's just gone now because no no the only the only person who survived was the uh was the servant who brought oh, the boy's okay. body all right, back. all right yeah i'm okay. pretty i'm pretty sure I think you're right yeah um yeah so yeah she she hasn't just left him because of the tragedy I'm, uh she is she is also dead um presuming she was on the ship back uh but i guess we don't actually get any confirmation of right. that but she was supposed to have been um anyway so the symbol of his loss um uh which you know more they like said ray's not afraid of fairly heavy-handed symbolism right um <laughs> And and there is actually a great moment when the storm's first rolling in be, in the flashback before his big party on uh, on New Year's Day. Um, he looks out the window and sees the storm clouds gathering, and there's a little thump off screen. And as he walks away from the window, he writes uh, a model ship that has been blown over by the wind. Oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Which is just a interesting small detail and part of the sound design uh that i really love anyway our ending he he drives his horse his sports horse 
straight at uh, straight at a ship. Um, and since it's not a car and is a a uh, animal with self preservation, uh, the horse stops right. and and bucks. Yes. Him. Um, and then all that blood of his ancestors spills out. Yeah, of his I mean, mouth. there's a, there's certainly like again, uh, as you said, right? Not afraid of symbolism is like one more. <laughs> yeah. I got to do one more. All that yeah. beautiful, like wonderful ancestral blood just all over the the rocks of the steps. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's, and it's fascinating, right? Because yeah. you know that's it, right? Like that's the end of this family. It's gone, right? Like that's right. That ancestral line of blood is is kaput. It's over. There's nothing right. left. Um, and it's on the beach, and the river will wash it drink away, it up just too. like just everything else, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's it's and you know and and the only people there to mourn him are the two servants who are the only people who like even seem to like notice him anymore, right? Like, yeah, he's it, it's clear that like at some point he was beloved, right? Like they right. they talk at the beginning. There's mention of the fact that like it, you know at certain times like. Even Gangali is like angry that like the only people anybody loves is the Roy family. Like nobody, you know, right? I give, but you know, he's 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 Gangali is chasing that public admiration from from the general public, right? And and Roy has it, but a lot of good it did him, right? He's just on a beach, dead with like the two servants that he could afford to keep around there, right? And goodness knows it doesn't even seem like he can actually afford to keep them around. More it seems that they just sort of stay out of a out of obligation that like he's not it doesn't seem like he's able to pay them. You know, like they're not they're not right. like the money that's still left is is not enough to actually have maintained their life, right? They're just essentially like getting like room for free and then having to like I guess like scrounge out whatever meek amount of money or whatever they need for life themselves. Um, so the impression you get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when they talk about the other staff having already left, they were, uh, they were offered positions by better financed. Yeah. Other families, uh, right? Aristocracy. Yeah. yeah. Aristocrats. Um, yeah. And presumably that's where, that's where these folks will end up too, right? Um, or maybe they end up across the street because Gangali wants wants what Roy has so much that he right. Will Although hire. you get into this sort of you get in a really interesting question about like, well, when Roy's dead, what does Gangali like? What does Gangali base his life around? Right? Like you've yeah, the the person you want that, but that that thing is long is gone and dead, right? I presumably Gangali tries to buy the the manor house, right? The the palace or something to that effect, right? But who knows? Or it just washes away into the river too eventually, right? It just falls further and further into disrepair. So with our bonus features, Criterion does one of those things where because of the way we're consuming the Criterion collection, I absolutely hate it. <laughs> Incorrectly. <laughs> uh this has happened before, uh, where our very first film from a director who we should be seeing more of, and will eventually see more of even, uh, also comes with a career retrospective documentary. Right, it's as just in case feature. we never ever get another one from from him in here. Right, just which, in case. Which is great. It 
it whets your appetite for the west, rest of his career. Uh, well, it's certainly it a nice. It's a nice feature to us, have on your Blu-ray or DVD or whatever. Yeah. Right? It's a good feature to right. have. Just boy, how yeah. you... gives us a near context-free introduction to the rest of the man's work. <laughs> it's like, oh, you, this entire documentary has roughly three minutes on the movie I just watched, and thirty minutes uh, spoiling a whole bunch. Well, in this one, an hour and a half of spoiling. All the other uh, movies we're going to watch. A whole bunch of movies. A whole bunch of movies I'm going to watch in the future. <laughs> Luckily, we will have forgotten so, it by then. So, yeah, even our 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 closest one is two years away. Uh, the big city is number six sixty eight. So we've got we've got a we've got a good amount of time right. to get everything we saw, <laughs> which I will guaranteed. Yeah, this one is. Uh, this one was a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're usually pretty, like, they're, yeah. I, usually I find them nice enough, right? I'm usually pretty engaged with them, find them interesting. Yeah. This one is so, so long. Two hours yeah, and it's 11 a minutes. It's a documentary by, yeah, a documentary by Cheyenne Benegal. Uh, yeah, and it is from 1984, and it is two, over two hours long. And for a movie that is only 99 minutes long, uh, it seems like a lot. Well, it but. seems like a lot also because it is a very slow documentary. Like it is you and I both yes. confess to each other independently of watching this on like double speed. It was because yeah. like Ray uh, Raya talks pretty slowly. The documentary progresses pretty slowly. You yes. are it's really the only thing that gets really weird is that one um the children's fairy tale with the like the good spirit. The Grant's wishes sped oh, yeah, up to yeah. two times speed is fucking hilarious. But other than that, because <laughs> right. the voice gets so high pitched and it's so fast. <laughs> that is fair. I actually, I, I, some of the film clips, I, I stopped. I, I did too. Uh, I, because I didn't need to blow through. Yeah. But, but, but in general, like, um, because they seemed interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what we get of a taste of his future films is, is interesting stuff. And, and I, uh, if it existed because Criterion was wetting our appetites for stuff it would show us in the future, that'd be great. It obviously wasn't because they had no idea they were going to right. Do it to really else. feels That's like why. well, we're, yeah. we've got this documentary. We were able to get the rights to this. Yeah, just fucking is, in case. It is ninety. Yeah, it is ninety-five spine numbers before they have another right. Rye release. So like it's, uh, yeah, not something they expected. But yeah, it's just I I always find it funny when we get someone who feels really important and Criterion knows they're really right, important. Right. So they give us this documentary about their entire career even though we have no context for the rest of their career because this is our first encounter yeah, and it, anything it, it, from them. Well, I'm always if fascinated we were, by it because it also kind of feels like a well it, it has this feeling of like um sort of like well you got to fucking figure out where to get the rest of these. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're interested in these tough shit. Figure right. it out. Yeah, I will. I will say if uh, if we weren't going about consuming the Criterion Collection in the insane way that right. we are, our our our, our very instead, specific madness. Yeah, and instead we're Rye fans. One, the Criterion Collection putting out the music room is great. No, uh, yeah, no, totally, absolutely. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the only way to have seen it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> At all, probably yeah, uh, yeah. When this was released, um, and buying that with a documentary about this great director, yeah, 
no, that's great. Especially uh, if the rest of these films are hard to come by uh, at the time. Well, um, and the nice and thing about still, these kind of retrospectives, know. if you think uh, about them from the other direction, is like, oh, well, most of these films are hard, maybe hard to come by. At least you're getting versed in the rest of them, right? Maybe you're like, well, I got this one, right. and at least I've now got some contextual information that'll help. Like, it's a pretty, a pretty sophisticated documentary, so it's like, oh, if I watch this and I get really into it, yeah, I a know what to be on the lookout for, which of these things I might want to actually go check out, try to find a way to watch. But also, like, you know, if your goal is to kind of be informed about cinema writ large, well, now I have some more information to use sort of as a sort of ground, like yeah. kind of base level of understanding of Indian cinema, right? Um, right, right. The thing the thing is, the way, the way you and I are moving through the Curry Collection and getting that education on Indian cinema uh, or, or any cinema around the world is – through watching the movies, and I'd rather just watch more Rai movies than, right, than right, a two-hour yeah. documentary. Yeah. I mean, career, the, 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 career retrospective. This one was from 1984. <laughs> this one was this one was kind of a particularly egregious version of it, right? In the sense that, like, yeah. this felt so, you know, and you can get why the people who made it made it right. The people who made it are doing a career retrospective. Yeah. They are like very much invested in like talking about yeah uh, Rai and stuff like that, but like. Um, Criterion including it does sort of feel like a, you know, it kind of like well, this you know we've we've had we we've had directors who literally had this paradigm, and then we will never see them again. Right. Uh, right. They, Criterion has done they that do this before. sometimes where it's like well yeah. this is what we've got we're putting it on there because this is the one we got and like you're getting it and like fucking this is it man hope you enjoy it yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the more egregious version of that is when Criterion uh, gives us a box set of literally every movie they ha- could get their hands on or will ever get their hands right. on. And then also the career retrospective that shows us the, <laughs> the, the other the ones. Of, and then, and the those, well, those ones always especially feel like, well, this is it, man. This is all we're getting. This yeah. is all you're ever going to get. It feels now, bear in mind, considering the Criterion Collection is ever expanding. There, you and I exist in a different world than the people who got this release it's fine 570 right in the sense that like yeah. you yeah. 570 is roughly around when we started right ish yeah we're still we're still a little bit off uh it was in the 600s when right we and so we're, we're only a co- we're a few years yeah. away from where we started right i think because at that time criterion's releasing what maybe 10 movies a year less than 10 movies a year right 10 ish yeah, I, I forget. I think it was like you and I yeah, did the math dozen, back then. A dozen uh, yeah. per year at most. Right. And so yeah. at the time, right, so we're probably a couple years off of where we started, right? It, we're probably like two or three years shy of where we started. And if you think about it then, right, like for a person who got this, it's like there's probably a decent understanding that maybe this is it. Right? Anyway, right? You're like, oh, well, I may not ever get another uh, Rye film because, like, they're only doing 12 a year, right? We'll never get – who knows if they'll ever show up again, right? Um. Whereas yeah. when we, we around the time we started, but probably a couple years later, is when they picked up their pace pretty noticeably. Um and uh there's a reason why they got they've gotten past a thousand in you know, they've done they've done almost the same they've done roughly the same number of films since we started as existed prior to us starting. So in ten right. years they've done 
they're doing at least double speed basically. So I'm saying like now we, right. you and I have the perspective of like, well, in the time we've been doing this, it's like, well, well, certainly these other ones will probably show up because they're constantly searching for new things to acquire to 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 release, and quite a bit. But like you know, when they're only doing twelve a year, it's like, well, we may never see another Rye film. This may be it, right? Take yeah. what we can get. I actually I have a note. Okay. I have a note that The Man Who Knew Too Much was the first Criterion release after we started posting episodes. Okay. So the first release in January of 2013. Okay. Uh, and that is spine number 643. Okay. Uh, which only about... 60 spine numbers away, 65 Right, but that's six away. years. Or like, uh, that's five years at their pace around the time we started, <laughs> that's, right? That's five years at their pace, and that is still... Uh, that means we'll get to it in February of 2024. Right. So, it's also uh, worth noting... We still have a little bit before we actually cross that it's line. It's also but, worth noting... But February 2024 is not really that far away. Or, no, February 2025. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I was like, that's not very yeah. far away. Um, the other thing that's worth noting, though, is that's the first one that we released after we started releasing episodes. Uh, we right. also recorded for yeah half a year. Yeah, so we also we also actually crossed the line of when we started recording sometime in the middle of next year. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So it took us like eleven. Anyway. It'll have taken us about eleven years to catch up with ourselves. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. So, I, I mean, either way, my my point is like. I, I, the, the thing I was trying to get at was just the idea that, like, probably to a person at the time when this comes out, this is probably a bit more of a. This could you could be understood as like, a, oh, this yeah. is it, man. This is all that's coming. Right. We got the career right. retrospective. We got this movie that maybe was the only, the one that was really really hard to get in the states, or just the only one they could get a hold of, or the one they liked especially for some reason. Um. Yeah. You know the 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 inner workings of Criterion's decision making system is, as we know, incomprehensible, right? Right, right. Uh, but like the the point being that like, yeah, they probably people were probably I, I would be I would have been very happy if this was showed up and you know it's like oh, I want to see this right, and then you get that documentary that can like kind of be like, oh, I wonder if I could find a way to see these other ones, and the answer was probably no, but you know whatever. Uh, and as such, you know something with with that career retrospective is great uh yeah it's something you you would have won right yeah that, yeah uh, that's kind of I, for I, us all, all in all as i say us, all that that's you know, what like, i was getting at is like yes yeah this is something yeah, you probably right. would have actually for us, like to have right for us knowing that we'll see these movies in the future many of them uh and not having the context of having seen them getting a five minute snippet snippet of right talking about each of these movies and maybe a clip from it. Um, just feels like information overload. In you know, so this ways, documentary right? certainly was. So, I will say, yeah. you know, you could glean really interesting things. Like him talking about his processes and stuff. That was fairly interesting. I liked it. Like, I'm always fascinated because he has the process of, of other people we've encountered before. Where, like, at least as far as the script was yeah. concerned, it was like, well, we said we'd fucking figure it out while we were there, basically. Uh, right. But, and they did. Yeah. Good job. Um, yeah. One of the other bonus features on this is Miranair talking about the film. Um, and Miranair was, is another one of the criterion 
where we get a full career retrospective, which is on, still on sad to me because I collection. enjoy Millionaire's work yeah. like quite a quite a bit, and it's like, oh well, we're never going to see any yeah. of that ever again. Yeah, yeah. Um, someday, someday we'll get mirror, more Millionaire. Uh, well, I mean, at the rate they're going, yeah. Yes. At least Millionaire. At least Millionaire was a was a. a you know, we had the seven short films as well as Monsoon Wedding on the first release. So we we got a good chunk of her work. Right. Uh just unfortunately as one DVD. So um but yeah. Uh Nair interestingly brings up that uh despite living relatively close to Kolkata, uh but over over the line from traditional Bengal, India, uh she never saw a Rye film until moving to America when she was 19. Never had the opportunity, uh, which is fascinating to me. But also she points out that even within Bengal, uh, you couldn't really see his work out outside of two months after its original release. Right, right. Uh, until, after, until after 1992 uh, when he got an honorary Oscar and then died. Uh, and you know, that, that starts, uh, uh, a wider interest in his work outside of perhaps the film scholar and film critic community. Well, and you know, we, we, uh, we've encountered this paradigm before where like, like the, very similar to this, I, I'm trying to think of exact, like specific directors and stuff, but where like, you know, a person's work is, is good and interesting, but it's sort of gets more appreciated overseas than it does in its home country because of just sort of the dynamics mm-hmm. of things. Uh, we've seen this, we've certainly seen this, I think with some Japanese directors and stuff and, and other, you know, various directors from various places where like, you know, it suddenly becomes a craze in some other country. And then that suddenly drives a, a, a push to, to get recognition for somebody who's making really interesting work, but maybe at home is like, not what the audiences are really looking for, so it's it's mostly just a scholarly thing rather than a mass audience thing, right? Never mind the fact that like prior to like DVDs and stuff, VHS and then DVDs, even with VHS, this is roughly true. Like, like most movies came and went, and people didn't, you know, it was sort of random right. what movies you saw and didn't see, right? Like, if you yeah. had the time and the money, you would go and- see a movie. And then, like, if you even if one was really good, like, yeah, maybe it would play longer, but it has a run, like a time that it runs in a theater, and then it's gone, right? It gets yeah. Uh, and as we've already displaced. talked about, Rye is kind of an outsider to mainstream. Right, right. His work is not not what people are looking for necessarily. Right. There are certainly a sort of probably a group of people who like make it a destination. Right. It's like okay. Rise releasing a film. Yeah. It's coming out now. I've got to go see it, right? And we'd see that with like indie film in the United States too, especially when I was like, when we yeah. were younger. Again, this is prior to like streaming and stuff, right? We're like, oh, this really well regarded director or you know is releasing a film. We're all gonna make sure we get to the independent theater to go watch it in time. But if you're outside of that that kind of group of people who's doing that, your chances of seeing one of those films is basically zero, right? Uh, and there's no way to like they're not re, you know, re-showing it and stuff. And so, you know, suddenly like like it, it sort of goes to show like how much the ability to home video like really changed the nature of people's ability to like 
find out about somebody after the fact, right? Like, suddenly it becomes yeah. possible for, like, a million directors, you know, and, and artists to be like, oh, it's okay if you weren't into it when that person was releasing because you can go see it now. You can see it. Whereas before, it's like, well, tough shit. It's over. It's done and gone. Maybe somebody will do a revival or something, and you're going to have to, like, drive halfway across the country to go watch it. But even then, will they? You know, like there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. Whereas now, you know, we we exist in a, as far as that kind of stuff is concerned, we we this is a much better world for that kind of stuff, right? It's nice that you right. don't have to catch a thing when it's actually present and you know a going concern, right? You can catch it later um, because you 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 know if you think about it, like. I mean, beyond the nature of our podcast, right? Beyond our beyond navel gazing is a general concept, right? Like, would you like the chances that you and me would ever ever see this is basically would have been zero, right? Yeah, like you would have to play the theater near you, near enough that you could go to, and you would have to know that it's something you should go see. Yeah, which is kind of an insane amount of things that have to come together, and and happen. So, yeah. So what I'm saying uh, is it's bug- basically a fucking miracle that anybody ever learned anything about any movies ever. Right, right. Because, yeah. like, if you think about film scholars yeah. and stuff prior to this, and, like, prior to, you know, the ability to, like, watch it at sort of any time, it's like, well, you would have, the things you would have to do to, like, do research on that is you would have, well, you would have to go to, like, one of the places that has a film library, and you had to sit at one of those, like, uh, machines where you can watch it, like, the, the mini, like, single use like tv projector things that are fucking insane uh yeah yeah, so i don't know and honestly i can imagine that uh you know um the apu trilogy gets into uh france in like 65 which is within 10 years of it being the first one coming out um but this doesn't get released until 1981 and I, I have to imagine that any of his films only get released in France because of his connection to Renoir, right? Yeah, I mean, really, seriously. Like someone yeah, in yeah. France is like, oh, this guy this guy worked with Renoir on the river. Uh, maybe we should check out the rest of his stuff. Well, yeah, um, and, there's, and there's just and, there's always a, the, light, the possibility that Renoir helps to make that happen, like, right, like physically right. Ma- helps to make that happen, right? Um, but also, the impression I've gotten from French cinemaphiles is, like, over the years, is it does seem to be a cadre of them that are actively hunting down interesting things from overseas to show in their yeah. theaters. Because things that, like, even when you can't figure out what the personal connection would have been, things get shown where it's like, oh, we just, like, there's enough, there's an audience enough of people who just want to see interesting work from overseas that there's a group of French cinemaphiles who are like talking to people in other countries and be like, hey, what's something interesting being made in your country to a certain extent? And like, can we get the rights to show it? Because probably the rights to show it cost nothing. Basically, right? Um, so, right, right, yeah. But then you, of course, have to translate it and stuff. But it's not like it's not like a free endeavor or anything, but um, nonetheless, uh, I'm sure Renoir is a, is a part of it, right? Absolutely. I'm just saying that, like, there, this does seem to happen a lot, especially within France specifically. 
seems to be more invested yeah. in the idea that like foreign cinema has something to offer you than a lot of other countries do, right? Yeah. Um, the final bonus feature on this is a 10-minute, 15-minute clip from a 1981 French roundtable discussion on French television um, coinciding with this film's release in France uh, with film critic Michel Simon, who I don't know that we've ever encountered before, not to my knowledge at least, uh, director Claude Sauté, who... Um, Famous for directed his Classe to Risque. Oh, yes, yes. Love sauteing vegetables. Uh, Classe to Risque, uh, right. which was spine 434. Uh, French gangster movie we watched. Uh, you know, <laughs> what's that make it? Like three three years ago. Um, it's uh, yeah, French noir. Jean-Paul Belamondo co-stars. It's, I'm sure if I looked at <laughs> pictures of it, I would uh, be able to kind of yeah. call it. Yeah. Uh, I seem to recall it being one that I liked more than a lot of French gangster movies. Uh, it's uh, about a guy on the run trying to sneak back into Paris uh, to see his kids uh, as he is uh, being chased by the police to uh, for a murder in Milan, if I remember correctly. But yeah, anyway, um, I remember liking it, but it's not a movie I think about a lot. Right, um, right. So... It's it's them and Ray, um, it's them and Ray talking about uh, talking about the movie and talking about uh, Ray gets to talk about uh, his love of music for a good chunk of that and how he he likes music more than cinema really um, and growing up listening to to Western classical music, uh, um, and yeah, I uh, one of the more interesting bits in that is it does offer us the only opportunity in all of this material uh, to have a discussion about how to pronounce uh, Rye's name. Uh, because the host of that show points out that she has apparently just learned that Rye is pronounced Rai in Bengali, uh, whereas she knows it in Hindi as Ray, uh, and that's what she's going to say because that's what she used to say. Right. Um, and- uh, which is a fantastic thing to say to the man's face. Yeah, it's. it's I mean, a, probably from 1981. He's really used to it, right? And but it's. I bet by the end of his the life, the most French thing you could possibly yeah. do. Yes, yes. Ah, uh, those French. It's like, oh yeah, <laughs> I understand that you the your, the real pronunciation of your name is this, but like, fuck but yeah. it, man, I'm not going to change. But yeah, literally all the other bonus features, they pronounce it Ray anyway, right? Almost no one I mean, says Ray, Ray in anything. Ray even calls himself Ray multiple times in that documentary. Because <laughs> it's clearly yes, intended yes, for an audience does. that if he calls himself Ray, they're going to be, who? Uh, yeah. So he just yeah. goes with it. Right. Well, um, and to a certain extent, one has to wonder if, if having lived his life the way he has, you, you know, he speaks English quite well. You know, he's a he's a good and he also probably he speaks Bengali, probably speaks Hindi, like code switching too, right? He's just code switching, right? People right. call me this in this right. language. I'm going to use the fucking what people call me the in this language, right? Like I, when I talk about myself in Japanese, I talk I say my name the way Japanese people say my name. You know what I'm saying? You you code switch your own name because nobody pronounces your name the way the people back home pronounce your name you know what i mean like that's kind of a Absolutely. thing right like 
Um, and so presumably, to a certain extent, yeah, he's on video. He's code switching to just be like, well, this is what people call me here. Uh, in English, they call me Ray. In Hindi, they call me Ray. At home, they call me Rai. These are all the same person that is me. Yeah, that's that probably me. that's probably um, fair. Yeah, you know, uh, but you know, no, no, <laughs> there is a there is a certain sort of extra. It does make it weirder when somebody acknowledges, like, I could be calling you the name that yeah. you actually know. Is your think, uh, that, like you feel in your heart, but fuck it, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm probably being unfair to her uh, too. Yeah. I think she says, uh, she essentially says, I'll try to remember that, but I will, I will accidentally say Rye or I will accidentally say Ray a lot. Um, and then I don't think anyone makes any effort not to say red. Yeah, for yeah, the yeah. It's, and, but, and like but, I said, I didn't watch that doc. I didn't watch that one. But there's a decent yeah. chance that that Rai refers to himself as Ray because he is code switching and yeah. he is just calling himself the yeah. name that everybody in this language calls him. Um, yeah. Also, um, Rai does not speak French at least well enough. Oh, right. To, that's true. Right. This is in French. This is, I, I forgot. This is in French. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he's got a little earpiece that's being translated, and there is a, a French voiceover every time he speaks to the point where I actually couldn't tell what language he was speaking. Oh, you know, I hate that. <laughs> so, they do that in Japanese TV yeah. all the time. There's there's literally nothing I hate more than the voiceover, like yeah. dubbing for like, where it's not even dubbing. It's just like, we're going to translate this with, wor- like with you know what I mean? It's different from dubbing because dubbing has this effort to like make it line up. Whereas these kind of voiceovers just exist and they just cover up most of what the person's saying. Right. Just fucking write it on the... And yeah. I understand we're talking about the 80s or whatever, and writing it on the screen is a significantly more difficult task than just saying the words out loud right. into a microphone. I understand that. Yeah. But fuck, I hate it. I hate it so much. I want to hear the person... Yeah, I, I, I have this obsession. I want to hear the person's real honest-to-God voice. I just want to know... Yeah. I want to hear, hear the, the inflection tone, they put the inflection. on words. Right? I want to hear it. Yeah. And you're killing that. You're just killing it. Again, I understand it's way easier yeah. to do that than to type it out because, like, certainly 1980s, the way you get text on screen is not a pleasant experience. Especially on television. That's what I mean. Is right. it, on a television screen, especially where yeah. you're not dealing with film per se, it's actually, it may, it's probably not beyond your capabilities, but it is probably pretty difficult. That actually, that brings us back around to uh one more complaint about the two hour documentary that uh okay that you shared before we started recording i've forgotten it already. where <laughs> about about half the time where uh either the interviewer or uh rye is saying someone's name uh oh, or yeah. saying something particularly what in the, bengali what the fuck i forgot about this where the criterion the criterion uh uh Closed captioning just says indistinguishable. Yeah, it says indistinct uh, or, or every, whatever. Every every or Indian yeah. name that is said in yeah. that entire two-hour documentary just says indistinct. They there's there's all these situations where they're making references, they're saying the name of a person that is like clearly important for. Now, mind you, most of it's in English, and and so mm-hmm. I'm I, I but I rely pretty heavily on subtitles to make sure I understand exactly what people are saying rather than what I'm guessing people are saying saying and yeah. and especially when we get into names of famous indian uh you know um intellectuals that come up sometimes and things like that it's like well I can't I'm not good enough at listening to my own language per se to like catch that name I could rewind it 7 times and probably sort out what people are saying 
But like when when a name is just thrown off the cuff, you're not expecting it to like to try to after like um Absolutely. And so you're like, well the subtitles, yeah. this is a chance for subtitles to shine where you just fucking write it. I hit the pause button and I write it down. And instead you give yeah. me indistinct in what is the grossest thing I've ever one of the I'm just like overwhelmed by how gross that is. It's like you couldn't be bothered to go find out yeah. Like clearly this is a, this is clearly an Indian intellectual who is important. That finding out who it was is is you know a few steps to figure it out, but it's probably not like an insurmountable obstacle. Um, and just nobody bothered to do it. And, and what it tells me is, yeah. it gives me the impression that whoever was tasked with making that those um, closed captions was not somebody familiar with Indian culture, Indian cinema, or anything like that. Yeah, and so yeah, it's just, just didn't know it's, and just wrote. Nah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's like fucking hell, man. Like it's a lot too. When it's the names of cities. Some of them are just the names of fucking cities. Like the only city they ever write out is Calcutta. Every other city, indistinct. It's like fucking hell, man. Just can't be bothered. It's sad. Whenever it's indist, with the exception of the rare times in a film. And it's not even that rare, but something like the third man, where uh, not being able to understand the language it, being spoken around Holly yeah. is is important to the audience understanding Holly's point of view. Uh, to the point where the first time I saw the third man, that subtitled uh, the crowd <laughs> scenes where he's being accused, and they, it and was right so off. Like I, I don't uh, know that they always yeah. do that either. I think sometimes it's just like. Yeah crowd yeah. yells or whatever uh, um well like yeah. we sometimes encounter but, that in um you know we've encountered there's good versions of it and there's bad versions of it right sometimes you like you said sometimes you yeah. don't want to understand it so they just put it like uh you know like crowd chatter or like or something where it's like okay right please yeah. ignore this information it's not important or you're not supposed to know i mean this is as bad as every time i say People speak like man's answers in Chinese or something like that. And I'm like, fuck off. I mean, the person said words. Yeah. Fucking just find out what right. they were um, and put them on there. Yeah. Like, you know, now, mind you, if the if the, the, the if the the character's not supposed to understand. It becomes fine. Right. But a lot of times it's it makes not. Sense. That's not the case. It's just oh, we couldn't be bothered. So we just put it in there like that. Yeah. And of course, here particularly, where uh, where it's a documentary, <laughs> right? Where well, there's yeah, there's no reason yeah. not to have that information in yeah. there. It would make the thing better, right? It, the thing would become noticeably better because your audience could like know what you know what place we're talking about more clearly, especially if you're talking about a fact that like these kinds of closed captions are really meant for the you know people who need hearing assistance. They're not for Right. They're not translation. Right. It's in English. We're watching the English closed captions for something in English. We're not talking about translation here. We're talking about this is meant to aid people. And you're going to make it so that for them personally, they can't know the name of any fucking place or person. Yeah. That's a bullshit, man. You have a sort of so you have a moral obligation, basically, to find out what was said or at least do the best you can. So that the people who need help to watch this know what the fuck he said. Because he's saying places. He's saying the names of famous people. Yeah. But they're all just like place redacted. It's like 
It's like a fucking U.S. government document at this point. It's like well, we just we just blacked out all the things we didn't want to didn't want to deal with. Don't exist. Uh, yeah, I just it, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It really it really got it got to me because it's so long. It's two hours long, and it's for two straight hours. It's like that. I think we probably pull this one to a close. Yeah. Um, one last little fun fact earlier when talking about how different this was in its use of music to other Indian film at the time, I used the term Bollywood, and I shouldn't because Bollywood is the Mumbai-based Hindi language film industry. Uh, the Bengali film industry is classically referred to as Tollywood, uh, and I have just learned in correcting myself uh, and looking up the actual information, uh, Tollywood... Uh, as a phrase dates back to 1932 making it the earliest of the hollywood inspired nicknames oh really for, that's interesting uh other yeah for other film industries i don't know about style and technical differences between tollywood and bollywood but nonetheless the music room presents presents music and performance in a way that is certainly not true of other indian film uh we're familiar with though principally bollywood um and as you pointed out, just isn't true for the way musicals <laughs> work. Right? Yeah, right? it's so, worth noting that they that that that, because, that that specifically those that kind of cinema isn't a classical tradition of musicals. Right. In the sense of like, fuck it, man, yeah. it's time to sing. Let's do this shit. You know, like it's cool. Nobody cares. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in any case, as uh, as the interviewer in the two-hour documentary points out. Uh, in the closing moments. Rai's position in Indian film is one of, quote, splendid isolation, uh, meaning that he's kind of a singular voice and no one's really doing anything right. else that he's doing. Rai then immediately pushes back and says, well, there are other guys doing what I was doing at the time. Uh, you just don't know who they are. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, the classic the classic problem of, like, we, we find that in other cinema, like, in other realms of cinema before, too, right? It's like, well, not every single person who is producing, for example, French New Wave or something, is somebody we're going to ever actually see. Because there's going to be the ones that never, that just never made it, right? There's going to be certain amounts that are just not part of the sort of discussion about it. Um, it's also worth noting that, like, I do, at least for me personally, I will say I, I stand by the fact that, like, I feel like this movie was a very singular piece of art. I don't, I, I, yeah. I, I struggle to think of in the past... 570 episodes a movie that felt like this like this like there's been things yeah. that hinted the no, same I emotions think... but this was so this was a very singular piece of art that i really admire i think I, i'm really deeply deeply like enamored with like just how good this is uh, and just and just how unique it is how, how, how different it feels from other things we've watched this week we have been talking about the music room from 1958, directed by Santijit Rai. We'll see more of his films over the years coming forward, and we certainly look forward to it. And Criterion, you took too long to show us the first one, so get to fixing it. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, they they, they already uh, they already it's did. Still, it's still going to be it's still going to be a while. Yeah, they took a while, <laughs> at too, least though. another year. Yeah. yeah. Before we see any really great film, really impressive, and yeah, just uh, I mean it's. Right up there uh, with one of my favorite experiences watching a movie. Uh, yeah. Next week, we will be talking about Life During Wartime, the 2010 American comedy from Todd Solon's 
It'll be our first Todd Solens too, but Todd Solens isn't exactly where someone we were chomping at the bit to right. see. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be interesting nonetheless. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always the Adam Glass with me as always, John Patrick Oitari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. Bye. listening to Lost in Criterion with co-hosts Lee Adam Glass and John Patrick Oitari Dorgan. With the collapse of Twitter, who knows what social media we might end up at. How about Blue Sky? That sounds great. Check out the official podcast account at lostincriterion.bsky.social. Jonathan Hape does our music, and you can check out more of his work at jonathan-hape.com or on any music streaming service. And you probably should. He's pretty good. A big thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You can join their ranks at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. And hey, thank you for listening.